right after the book of Daniel. Hosea, the prophet, is the title. We're going to use selected scriptures. The prophet Hosea provides for us a window to look into the debauched condition of the people of God in the northern kingdom of Israel as he proclaims their coming judgment. It is sealed. They're going to be judged. They're going into captivity. Nothing's going to change it. It has been said that the mantle of Amos, who also prophesied to Israel, fell on the shoulders of Hosea. Yet, there could be no greater contrast between the two. Amos was the prophet of justice and judgment, while Hosea, as we will see, is the prophet of love. Not that Amos didn't have love of God or motivated by the love of God for his message and the people, but the fact that the Holy Spirit has allowed Hosea to radiate in heart the heart of God for the people of God through the marriage of Hosea to Gomer, who, as we will see, was a prostitute, a harlot. Let me give you the minor prophets um, in their chronological order because we don't have them here in our Bible as such. Six major or six minor prophets prior to the captivity of the northern kingdom uh, by Assyria in 722. This is their chronological order. You have Obadiah, 845 B.C., Joel, 835, Jonah is the third, 765 Amos comes forth, 760 B.C. Hosea is fifth, 740 B.C. And then you have Micah, sixth, in 735 B.C. That's the chronological order of the minor prophets before the captivity of the northern kingdom. So let's look at Hosea, the prophet of love, through a threefold lens. First, the prophetic office of Hosea. Second, the horrific time of Hosea, and thirdly, the historic message of Hosea. The prophetic office of Hosea comes first. It opens up the book. Chapter 1, verse 1, the name of Hosea is most significant in view of his message. The name Hosea means salvation and deliverance. Perhaps a contraction of a longer form of God's divine name. The original name of Joshua was changed by Moses, as you know, to Hoshea, the same as Hosea, the prophet here. It has the same root, Numbers 13, 8, and 16. Now, there are various individuals named Hosea in the Bible. Uh, the last king of the kingdom of Israel, uh, 2 Kings 15, 30, the chief uh, of the tribe of Ephraim under David, in 1 Chronicles 27, 2, and the chief under Nehemiah, Nehemiah 10, 23. So we want to distinguish those, uh, as in the New Testament, there are a lot of Marys, a lot of Herods, and get confusing sometimes. Now notice the family lineage of Hosea is short. It's given again in verse 1. Hosea is the son of Biri. Um, the name Biri means uh, the well of Yahweh. It's also found in 1 Chronicles 5, 6, is genealogy. But there's no other family descendancy record or anything else that we can find. This is all we know about him. Very, very short. Um, Hosea was a married man. His wife was named Gomer, which uh, means complete. We get that in chapter 1, verse 3. And God called Hosea to marry Gomer, who was a harlot. Her father was Diblaim. In verse 3, which means two cakes, and we know nothing else about him. He could have been a baker. Hosea is going to make an analogy of the bakers and their hot ovens, speaking about the lust and the sexual perversity of that day. So, it's possible. 
Now, the prophet Hosea is one of the 12 minor prophets. The minor prophets are believed to have been grouped by um, Ezra A.E. by the great synagogue in 475 B.C. The Hebrews called it the book of the 12. The title minor prophet is to distinguish them from the major prophets such as Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel. But the title minor prophets is said to be due to the brevity or the shortness of the prophetic books. But really it's a misnomer because um, um, Daniel and Zechariah have less chapters than Hosea. So it's not true to form. One thing for sure is that the title minor prophets is not because they are less important or less inspired. Both major and minor prophets that we categorize as such are inspired completely equally and it's God's word. Is that clear? Okay? It is God's word. No less, no more. It's equal completely. Now, Hosea prophesied to the northern kingdom of Israel, and the evidence is all over the book. We'll get some of that. The house of, uh, of Jehu in chapter 1, verse 4, and the kingdom of Israel are seven times in the book of Hosea and is used synonymous with the head of the northern kingdom, Ephraim, Ephraim, Ephraim. The first mention is 417. The last one is 148. 37 times. Now, the kingdom of Israel is referred to as the house of Israel and the children of Israel in chapter 1, verse 6, verse 10, 3, 1, and 4, 1. And there are other terms that are used that are all synonymous with the 10 tribes of the northern kingdom. Israel, northern kingdom, 10 tribes. Ephraim, the head of the 10. Northern kingdom, southern kingdom. Okay? Gilead is mentioned twice, a city of evildoers and a house of idols in, in uh, Hosea 6, 8 and 12, 11. Mount Tabor, the city of Shechem is mentioned in chapter 5, verse 1 and 6, 19. Shechem is right in the middle of the country, beautiful area. Um, we don't even go there anymore because a lot of the Samaritans and it's real hostile. Beautiful area though, but totally desolate. Gilgal and Beth Avon, literally house of idolatry or wickedness in 4.15, 9.15 and 12.11. House of uh, Bethel is house of God. Beth Avon is house of idolatry. The contrast that they made of it. The cities of Samaria and Bethel are also mentioned in 10.5 and 10.15. It's all the northern regions. Hosea probably was from the north also. There's no internal evidence that would lead us to believe that he came from the south. And the reference to the four kings, as we'll see in verse 1, is just to correspond to the ruling of King Jeroboam. And this way, you can verify the dates and everything. And this is often the case in kings, both southern and northern kings, so that you can see the accuracy of God's word. Listen to... Amos chapter 7, verse 12 through 15. Then Amaziah said to Amos, Amos also prophesied 20 years earlier in the northern kingdom, Go, you seer, flee to the land of Judah. There eat bread and there prophesy, but never again prophesy at Bethel, house of God. For it is the king's sanctuary and it is the royal residence. Then Amos answered and said to Amaziah, 
I was no prophet, nor was I the son of a prophet, but I was a sheep breeder and a tender of sycamore fruit. Then the Lord Yahweh took me as I followed the flock, and the Lord said to me, Go prophesy to my people Israel. This is Hosea. Call, send, anointed to deliver God's word. Not a man, not a man who thinks he's self-righteous, not one who thinks he's better than someone else, one who is the mouthpiece of God. These are the prophets. Each of us as believers are to remember that we are to be known for our salvation and deliverance as the name Hosea. The name Jesus means Yahweh's salvation. Being born again of the word and the spirit as Jesus told Nicodemus in John 3, 3 through 5. Not of works, but by the regeneration of the Holy Spirit, Titus 3, 5 tells us. The spiritual birth came by repentance of our sins through grace and faith. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, God illuminated and convicted us and we saw ourselves under the wrath of God and convicted us and we repented and he saved us. He did not repent for me. He didn't force me to repent. We're called Christians, which means Christ-like, so we are to share the gospel of salvation with others about the wrath that's upon them and the wrath that's to come. That's not being negative. If you see someone who is in danger of being run over or of being engulfed in, a, in flames of a building and you warn them, do you think their first response after they see the danger say, Boy, you aren't very loving. Peter warned Acts 2. Next year will be 40 years that I'll be in ministry full time. Fast. Overnight. The minute I was born again, 42 years ago, we started sharing with people about God's judgment to come. He was coming. The heart of the Jesus movement through Pastor Chuck was, Jesus is coming. Maranatha. Most of us, like Hosea, do not come from some high-standing uh, lineage, nor can we follow some great descendancy of listing. So we qualify, like Hosea, to be used of God to warn people about their sinful living. And, um, but this is not popular today. But someone warned you, someone preached, someone prayed for you. And God is not interested in our genealogy or high standings, but in our humble bowing before his holiness. That's what the gospel does to you. Without the gospel, we're arrogant and say, well, you know, I'm not as bad as somebody else. I'm better than this one. If God wants to damn me, fine. Ooh. But when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you see yourself under the wrath of God. You say like Isaiah, woe is me. I'm undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. God, be merciful to me. Forgive me. Whoa. It's not what you hear today in the church, ladies and gentlemen. God is not looking for our ability, but our availability. Listen to Paul, 1 Corinthians 1, 26-29 says, For you see 
your calling, brethren. Not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of this world to put to shame the things that are wise. And God has chosen the weak things of this world to put to shame the things that are mighty. And the base things of this world are the things which are despised. God has chosen and the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are that no flesh should glory in his presence. Now, one of us can glory, ladies and gentlemen, certainly not your pastor. No Christian today speaks under divine inspiration like Hosea the prophet. Please understand this. This is a sham. That men can speak under inspiration today is as, is as big a lie as global warming. It's the biggest hoax. So the world has its lies and the church has its lies. People that will abuse you. They will claim the title of prophets to prophesy over you, to predict future things. Yet they don't come to pass, but they manipulate and they abuse their position with people that are carnal or ignorant of God's word. Listen to Jesus, seven, Matthew seven fifteen. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. Peter says, but there were also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them, and bring on themselves swift destruction, Second Peter 2, 1. Every Christian has the inspired, inerrant, written word of God. It's on your lap or on your iPhone. That means that it is literally the word of God. You can trust every word. Now, that's not the belief of most churches, most pastors, most seminaries, most Christian colleges. They've given up the inerrancy of God's word. They allegorize, they spiritualize, they don't take the word literally what it is. All scripture is given by inspiration of God, profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction, and righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All, old and new, all, all is all, Greek, Spanish, Greek, pig Latin, whatever. And so we have a prophetic word more sure, more confirmed, that we take heed to that light that shines out of darkness. That the men of old did not speak of their own impulse or origin, but they spoke as they were carried along by the Spirit of God. So what you possess is the God's inerrant and infallible word, ladies and gentlemen. Second Peter chapter 1, 19-21. If not, who is going to tell me what is inspired and what is not? You? Me tell you? This was the prophetic office of Hosea. What I'm telling you is God's word. Wow. Second comes the horrific times of Hosea. The time is dated by um, the kings that were reigning at the time that Hosea was prophesying. Hosea prophesied during the reign of four kings of Judah in verse 1. Uzziah, or Azariah, some kings have two names. He reigned from 792 to 740 B.C. Next is Jotham, his son. He reigned from 750 to 732 B.C. And they overlap because they co-reigned. Many of these kings did. So it's not a contradiction in different commentaries you read. There's a co-reign that sometimes they don't mention. Ahaz comes next, 743 to 728 B.C., again co-reigning. And then Hezekiah, 728 to 698 B.C. 
Now the starting reign of the first king Uzziah was 792 B.C. And the last king Hezekiah began his reign in 728 B.C. Giving us a window time of 54 years. But there's one more king that Hosea lists. He prophesied during the reign of the king of Israel in the days of Jeroboam II, the son of Joash. Jeroboam I, it was him through whom the division came in Solomon's son Rehoboam. Jeroboam II here reigned from 793 to 753 B.C. Remember, Amos the prophet prophesied in 760 B.C. under the reign of, he says, Uzziah, Amos 1.1, under the same reign as here Hosea. It is also believed the ministry of Hosea ended just before the captivity of the northern kingdom, which was 722, or up to it. I believe it's up to it. So if you look at that, then the duration of Hosea's ministry, if he started at 755 to 722, is about 32 years. Again, even if we didn't know dates, even if we couldn't figure out certain dates, it doesn't matter. What matters is, what is the message? Are we clear on here? Okay? It's very important. Now, the time had other prophets that were contemporaries with Hosea's prophesying also. There was Isaiah the prophet who prophesied to Judah to repent of their idolatry. They're going to go into captivity. 740 to 680 B.C. Isaiah's a contemporary. Same time Hosea's preaching. He's down in the south. Hosea's up in the north. Amos prophesied to Israel in 760, again B.C., before Hosea, um, 20 years before. And then Micah prophesied to Judah of their social injustice and greed about five years after Hosea began his ministry in 735. Hosea is much like Jeremiah teaching judgment and captivity. They both saw it. So you've got a lot of contemporaries. See, I, I'm, I'll be 66 in February, but I was a contemporary with J. Vernon McGee and Chuck Smith and others. I was alive when my great-grandmother was still alive in Mexico, and she was born somewhere in 1850, 1860. That's a heck of a long time to be contemporary with people, okay? So it's not that far-fetched and the overlap and everything. Now, the time situation of the country was dark, as Hosea prophesied. Um, during Jeroboam II here, his reign, they enjoyed our prosperity. Finances were great, but internally, corruption, a dark time of their history. And they didn't have one good king. The northern kingdom had all bad kings, all of them. The presence of private and public honor was gone. The social conscience was completely destroyed. Immorality of the vilest sort was practiced and went on unrebuked. Listen to Hosea 4.1. Hear the word of the Lord, you children of Israel, for the Lord brings a charge against the inhabitants of the land. There is no truth or mercy or knowledge of God in the land. That will do it every time. It happens in nations, it happens in churches, and it happens in lives of individuals. The warning of judgment was to the priest, the king, the people for idolatry, which brought about immorality, religion, and abusive policies and politics. 
Chapter 5, verse 1 accuses them that the king was known for his corruption. Verse 1 of 5. The princes were known for their dishonesty. 5.10. The prophets and the spiritual man were declared by God to be insane, a snare to the people in 9, 7 through 8. Those that were supposed to lead and protect, they were the corruptors. Syncretism destroyed them. And they ascribe all these pagan practices and teachings and living to Yahweh's worship. If you bring your pagan practices, your religious practices, your traditions of culture under Christianity and call it Christian while it contradicts the Bible, that's syncretism. It will destroy you and everyone who imitates you. Is that clear? God had been faithful to send his prophets, calling them to repent, speaking by visions and symbols, as he says in chapter 12, verse 2, regarding Hosea. The marriage to, to his wife Gomer, a similitude, a parallel to God's relationship. Literal. Hosea 4, 6 says, My people are destroyed for the lack of knowledge because you have rejected knowledge. I also will reject you from being priests for me. Because you have forgotten the law of your God, I also will forget your children. It's done. Judgment is coming. They've been being warned for more than 200 years. Our nation's just a little bit over 200 years. Foreign alliances were attempted with Assyria and Egypt. It's all through the book, chapter 2, 5, 7, 8, all over. God warned them, you depend on me. Don't trust other people. You may think you've got it wired. Well, it's okay. You know, I'll go here, I'll go there, I got it. Okay. The death of Jeroboam brought about short-lived reigns due to assassinations, murder, conspiracies, and corruption. Four of six successors of Jeroboam died by violence. Hosea 8.4 says, They set up kings, but not by me. They made princes, but I did not acknowledge them. Wow. Sounds like the church. People go to seminary and they get indoctrinated with liberalism and they get sent out to the pulpits of America. God hasn't called them. God hasn't anointed them. There they are corrupting the people. Do you realize that the majority, all the major denominations, believe in replacement theology? Fuller, APU, many of them, they all believe in replacement theology, that means that God is through with Israel, will not have anything to do with Israel, and that we, the church, are Israel now. And all the promises are to us. Eh, you get an F in the subject of the Bible. Absolutely wrong. What do you do with Romans 9, 10, 11? What do you do with the passage we're going to look here? What do you do with Daniel 20, 20, uh, 9, 24, uh, 25, 27? 27 specifically. Wow. All the social evil denounced by Amos had not debated. And not gone away, it only increased. Listen to Hosea 4, 7. The more they increase, the more they sin against me. I will change their glory into shame. See, sin's fun for a season, but then it comes back and smacks you like a boomerang. And when you're in the middle of sin, you're not thinking it's horrible. It's right after that the boom comes down. 
733 B.C. Tilgath-Pileser captured Damascus. 722 B.C. Sargon captured Samaria, the northern kingdom. Went into captivity. Never to return again until after the Babylonian captivity. Wow. There's no greater illustration of all this than the new moral society in America. An amoral society. The parallel between the northern kingdom and the U.S. is interesting. Some of you may remember Ronald Reagan was president in 1981 to 89, and he turned the country around. He brought incredible prosperity because he took government out of the lives of people. And we flourished, but we didn't respond right. Because it flourished, and if you remember, interest rates were 19, 20, 21%. Okay? The gas wars were in the mid-70s. Okay? Iran um, had uh, taken uh, hostages, okay, under Carter. But Americans just, oh, great! I bought my house for 20000 It's worth 100000 They mortgaged it, bought a second house, bought a car, bought a boat. Boom! And then, and then... The crash came in December of 2008. And everybody lost everything. Because we got greedy. And for all those years, we lived for prosperity. And we lived in sin. And God has judged America. Listen to me very carefully. God judges a nation at times by giving them prosperity. Because he knows because of their greediness... They'll destroy themselves. Wow. Isaiah 3.12. Hosea's contemporary says, As for my people, children are their oppressors, and women rule over them. O my people, those who lead you cause you to err and destroy the way of your paths. You want two characteristics of God's judgment to a nation? Here it is. Children are their oppressors and women rule over them. Look at American society. The home has been destroyed. The woman's liberated. The woman's striving to show how equal she is to a man. You look at any commercial, men are, look, are presented as a bunch of idiots. Children are used to teach adults. Women have the greatest authority. You're telling me God's not judging America? I'm only blind in one eye. The interesting thing in our days is to see the prophetic enemies of Israel. Russia's posturing herself, working behind the scenes through Iran, who have vowed to drive every Jew into the sea. And the whole world is not saying anything about it because the world is anti-Semitic. Anti-Semitism is growing large, large, all over Europe, like in Hitler's day. The U.S., we turn our back on Israel. Our last policies with Netanyahu. Absolutely. Again, some of the greatest anti-Semit movements are from within the church today, the major denominations that teach replacement theology. The Catholic Church is totally anti-Semitic. They believe that the Jews need to be punished, and they did through the centuries. Hitler and the Pope were friends. 
The Pope got many of Hitler's guys out to South America, Mexico, Central America. Do some history study. Okay? Wow. Ultimately, Russia will attack Israel. God will destroy five, six of that army with her confederacy of Islamic nations, Ezekiel 38 and 39. Listen to Zechariah 12, 3. And it shall happen in that day that I will make Jerusalem a very heavy stone for all peoples. All who would have, have heaved it away will surely be cut in pieces, though all nations of the earth are gathered against it. What do you do with just that one verse? When you tell me God is through with Israel. When you make the church spiritual Israel. It's a contradiction. It comes from covenant theology. The early church fathers. The Catholic church. We got to remove all that baggage. Read the Bible for what it is. There's the wife and there's the bride. The wife's been married. Committed adultery. The bride is looking for a wedding. Don't mistake in them. The chaotic disorder in our nation and the world is self-evident, ladies and gentlemen. Like Israel in the days of Hosea, the moral and ethical decay has turned our nation into an amoral relative society. The leaders and the educators are corrupt and self-serving, rejecting God and his word, exalting the wisdom of man, and the church is no different. Embracing psychology and new age and everything else. Contemplative prayer and everything else. The hard-working American, the conservative, the patriot, are marked, marginalized, and targeted. The same as those who were faithful, like Hosea, Isaiah, Jeremiah. Warning the nation. Again, listen to Isaiah, his contemporary, chapter 5, verse 20. It says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, and put darkness for light, light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Welcome to America. And I love America. I love America. Breaks my heart. These were the horrific times of Hosea. Thirdly, comes the historic message of Hosea. Chapter 1 through 3, Hosea was to proclaim the sin of Israel against God, spiritual adultery. The command notice in chapter 1, verse 2 to Hosea is, Go take for yourself a wife of idolatry. Some say it's uh, figurative, allegorically. No, it's literally. God interprets it for us in verse 2. God interprets the marriage of Hosea as a parallel to himself and Israel. Both are literal. For the land has committed great harlotry by departing from the Lord. Be careful of people that spiritualize things away. Well, that's not what it means. They interpret it for you. He was commissioned to speak to Israel in symbols. Similitudes, as I said earlier in chapter 12, verse 10. His marriage, parallel to Israel. The children born to Gomer were three in verse 4, 6, and 9 of chapter 1. In verse 4, a son, Jezreel, means God's souls are scattered, representing God's judgment coming to the house of Jehu. Verse 6, the daughter, La Ruhamah, no mercy or pity, indicative of the judgment that comes through Assyria. And then a third one, a son, uh, named Loemi, not my people, representing God's rejection of Israel, indicative of the son of adultery, by Gomer, while married to Hosea. 
So the wife of Gomer would commit adultery against him, against his steadfast love, which represents the steadfast love of God. This is the message of Hosea. You have to love this guy. His obedience, his submission to God. Whew. Are you kidding me? In chapter 2, verse 2 through 23, the charge of adultery against Gomer was declared. In 2 through 5, Hosea told the children, uh, his children to plead with their mother to put away her harvesters in return, having violated the marriage covenant and her steadfast love of her husband, Hosea. We will see her allurement was material gain and pleasure. In verse 6, through seven, God would chasten Israel for her unfaithfulness, hedge her up with thorns as, he, as she tried to return to her lovers. And he did this in hope that she might see the futility of her pursuit and that it wasn't worth losing her way or the security of her home. Weigh it out. Be careful before you jump off that building. Make sure there's water or concrete. Israel, like Gomer, failed to recognize God's providence was out of love, but rather attributed to the Baal, so God would remove everything from verse 8 to 13 of chapter 2. Fine, I'll take everything from you. This is the cult worship. There in verse 8 through 13. Temple prostitution. Perhaps this is what Gomer had reduced herself to. Who knows? Chapter 2, 14 through 23, God's mercy over Israel and final restoration in the kingdom is given to us. Now, what do you do with these verses if you believe in replacement theology? If you tell me that I am the true Israel, the spiritual Israel, now I replace Israel, what do you do with this verse when God says he's going to restore? Well, what you do is you're spiritual. I said, no, it means us, the church, and you put it to the church. If you look at the old King James, some of the old passages, the headings on top, they're not inspired. Men put them there. They say the church. It's not. It's Israel. <laughs> it's a great translation, but the headings are wrong sometimes. Key word here is steadfast, or loving kindness. Hesed, a key covenant word identifying God's steadfast betrothed love. It's found through chapter 2, 4, 6, 10, 12, 14. What we won't learn through loving kindness, we have to learn through chastening. Chapter 3, verse 1 through 5, the command of God to Hosea was to redeem Gomer out of the slave market. Man, Hosea was to go again and love Gomer. Verse 1 of chapter 3, who had been loved sexually by other men as God would do for idolatrous, spiritual, adulterous Israel. Wow. Now, this is not recorded so that you can be disgusted. This is recorded so you can say, that is I. Understand? No one can say it's not I. Absolutely not. Not one person. God is so gracious. Hosea said, yes, Lord, I'll do that. Wow. Wow. He paid half of the price of a slave, 15 shekels and 80 gallons of barley, animal food, in verse 2 of chapter 3. Gomer hit bottom, sold herself into slavery, having lost her beauty and her desirability now. 
This happens often to women who are party girls. And the longer they stay in the party, the, the more they have to turn the light down. And the harder it is, they try to keep it up and it just gets pretty ugly after a while. They used to go, and then they go, sin takes a toll. It takes a toll. Hosea sanctified her and pledged his own sanctification for her alone. Verse 3, mark that well. Now he could have had her stoned to death at the gate. Deuteronomy 22, 22. He said, Lord, I'll obey you. Each of us have been bought out of the slave market. Romans 3.24, Galatians 4.5, 1 Peter 1, 18-19, many, many others. The future fulfillment is for the latter day's restoration. Notice that here in chapter 3, verse 4-5 through 5 again. Israel had not had access to God. Her sin. Now, 2,000 years later, still doesn't have access. Being without sacrifice, Ephah referring to the priesthood and the mediator. The temple is destroyed in 70 A.D. by Titus. No access to God. No way to forgive sin. Notice next comes chapter 4 to 13. Hosea was to proclaim indictments, denunciations, and judgments of Israel from God. This is not Hosea. He's the mouthpiece. Chapter 4 through 14 should be interpreted in light of chapter 1, 2, and 3, which is the prologue. Chapter 1 represents God's relationship to Israel in the early days. Chapter 2 represents Israel's spiritual adultery of unfaithfulness to God. Chapter 3 represents God's restoration of Israel in the future. Notice chapter 4. The charges against the children of Israel are parallel to Gomer's adultery. There is no truth, mercy, knowledge of God committing adultery, murder. Both priests and people alike are unfit to reprove each other in rejecting light and choosing darkness. Chapter 4, 1 through 6. Whoa. People are destroyed. The interceding priest is removed. The, the law is forgotten. Chapter 4, 7 through 10. The increase of their sins. People and priests are alike. They will not prosper. 11 through 14 of 4. Harlotry, wine, idolatry, enslave their hearts, destroying the marriage covenant so God would give them up to their idols. Once again, the cultic practice, prostitution, sexual rights, and drunkenness here. The Bible speaks much about alcohol. Proverbs 21.1, Genesis 9.21, Noah got off the boat, got crocked. David gave Uriah wine in 2 Samuel 12. Now some of you don't believe this applies to you today. Some of you still drink. It'll destroy you. The emergent church is giving permission to drink. If you, look, if you listen to Cave Wave and, and a lot of the people on it, they, they're all about drinking. What happened? Chuck dies and everybody goes drinking now? Wow. I used to drink. You know what came from my life when I drank? And you too. Why would you want to do that as a Christian? Be not drunk with wine in excess, but be filled with the Spirit of God. Simple. I didn't drink a six-pack or a case or three six-pack because I was thirsty. You say, well, I do it in the privacy of my own home. Really? You don't have children? You don't have a wife? You don't think it can affect them? And if I ask you to drink, you're going to lie to me and say no? Now you're a liar. Why would you want to do that? 
It's very acceptable today, especially in the emergent church. Pastors have beer bashes with their elders. Wow. Chapter 4, verse 7 through 10, they increase in their sins. Wow. Now notice chapter 4, 15 through 19. God warned Judah not to partake of the Israel's sins and pride, giving her up. Verse 15, don't go to Beth-Avon, house of wickedness, rather than Bethel, house of God. Corruption. Verse 17, Ephraim has joined your riders. Let him alone. Done. Pancake have done. Jeroboam said of the calf worship, as you know, in Dan and Bethel, that the people not return to the feast in Judah and pledge their loyalty to Judah. And the interesting thing, if you go back to 1 Kings 12, is that God told Jeroboam the first through Ahijah the prophet, listen, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to give you ten tribes. And I'm going to bless you like the house of David. But when he got up there, he didn't trust God. He was afraid of losing the people, so he set up the calves. We'll never know how God was going to do it. What we have in history is not what God intended. Wow. The charges against the elders, the leaders, chapter 5 through 8. In 5, 1 through 3, the priests... And king would be judged more severe for being a snare to the people. The princes for their dishonesty, their pride being the problem. 5, 4 through 7, seeking God would not be honored, but he would remove himself. And they had begotten pagan children. And we see this much in the church today. There's a loss of fear of God. People get saved, they come out of the world, and then they start messing around. Then they, they have children with unbelievers, and then they want to, you know, and things are happening in the church that, my Lord, are you kidding me? Now, you've been married a hundred times in the, before you come to Christ. They're all forgiven. But after Christ, what's going on? We're acting like worldly people, like the world. There's no difference between us, except we come to church. The nation in the future will see God's face and return to him. In the great tribulation, he would revive them. Chapter 5, verse 15, down to chapter 3, verse 3. All, what do you do with all those verses? If you believe in replacement theology. If you believe the church is Israel. Chapter 6, 4 through 11, God's broken heart is an anguish. Expressed here in the view of their sin and lewdness, their faithlessness. Like a morning cloud in contrast to a steadfast love. You know what the morning cloud is, right? You see it, it's gone. That's their love. It's fickle. Temporary. In 7, 1 through 16, God declared they did not consider that he saw all their lewd sins in Samaria, refusing to return to him, but trusting in Egypt and Assyria. You trust in your arm of flesh. You trust that you have everything in line and you're in control. Nobody knows. God said, hey, I see everything. Moses looked to the left, looked to the right, but he forgot to look up. Chapter 8, 1 through 14, the charge to sound the alarm is given for judgment, having set up their own kings, the calf worship, altars of sin. They have forgotten God, so God now rejects them. They sow to the wind, they would reap the whirlwind, verse 7 tells us. Then comes the charges of plain to hearted, chapter 9 and 10. In chapter 9, 1 through 4, she is rebuked, shame should have marked her fees, not joy, as they asked infertility rights for the land to be fertile. But God would stop all of this that disgusted him 
by the captivity. Verse 1 through 4 of chapter 9. What would they do in that appointed day? Verse 5 and 6 says. Got it all wired. All of a sudden, boom, judgment come. What do you do now? You're before your Lord. What do you do now? He says. Verse 7 through 17 of 9. The prophets of Ephraim were unfaithful watchmen. Responding unnatural to God's love. God would cast them away. Chapter 10, 1 through 15. Israel's sin at the core was living for, listen, self. Not God. Isn't that what we did before we came to Christ? Why, why would I want to continue to live for myself? That was a problem. I was a problem. Their heart was divided. Verse 12 tells us a final invitation to repent. This is the key verse. Listen to it. So to your self-righteousness, reap in mercy, break up your fallow ground, for it is time to seek the Lord till he comes and rains righteousness on you. Wow. God's grace, God's love. He will restore Israel in the latter days. Chapter 11 through 13, the charge of sinning against God's love now. This is the worst form of sin against love. God now turns to declare his love for Israel, pictured by Hosea for Gomer, his wife. In chapter 3, verse 1 through 11 of 11, God's everlasting love for Israel. He delivered them, in verse 1 through 4, from Egypt. They went after idols, yet God taught them, walked with them, healed them, drew them with bands of love, and fed them with gentleness. And they just walked away from him. Wow. Verse 5 through 11. He is torn in emotions over the discipline and promises to restore them. Oh Israel, oh Ephraim. God's heart is torn. In chapter 11, verse 12. All the way to chapter 12, verse 14. God's anger is also against Judah. In verse 2 of 12, the legal complaint and punishment against Judah is given. God is not like man. He will not, nor can he, clear the guilty of sin without confession and repentance. Otherwise, he would violate his holiness. 11, 9 and 12 tells us that. They were to learn some lessons from Jacob that is mentioned in chapter 12, 3 through 5. Remember, he struggled with the angel and prevailed, it says. He wept. And he clung to God, fearing his brother. How did Jacob prevail? Well, when we get there, we'll tell you, but let me give you a sneak preview. It wasn't by, by pinning God down and wrestling. It means that he submitted to God. That's how you win with God. You submit to him. You say, yes, Lord, you're right. Forgive me. Change my heart. Let me follow you. Let me obey you. That's how we win. By submission. If you think you can pin God down. That you're a better wrestler. You're delusional. (laughs) If you want your way. You will always lose. Always. God is Lord. The Lord of hosts. Captain of the armies of heaven. Hosea 12.5. He's not impressed with armies or with numbers. The application is in verse 6 of 12. 
So you, by help of your God, return, observe mercy and justice, and wait on your God continually. How faithful God is. Only God can help us in this. Israel was following Jacob's deceitfulness, 12, 7 through 8. Like a Canaanite or merchant implying dishonesty, saying no one would discover her sin. Wow. You as a parent know when you're trying to deal with your child and when they snub you, does that make you feel kind of nice and warm and fuzzy and you want to give them a nice hug? I don't think so. God's judgment will not be thwarted, verse 9 through 14 of 12. Then in 13, verse 1 through 16, judgment of Israel is based on certain things. Notice, verse 4 of 13, or verse 2, they sin more and more. Four, he was their Lord and their God. Twelve, the iniquity of Ephraim was bound up and her sin was stored up. Sixteen, Samaria was guilty having rebelled against her God. Wow. Chapter 14, 1 through 9, Hosea was to proclaim the future restoration of Israel. What a way to finish it, restoration of Israel. What do you do with your replacement theology? Do you think God's speaking in code here? There's, there's commentary that the code of the Bible. You got one? Light your fireplace with it. God pleaded with Israel through his steadfast love and provides the very prayer that will be accepted by God in verse 1 through 3. Verse 1, the message is repent. Ooh, return to the Lord. There it is. Verse 2, they were to make confession of their sin based on grace, offering the off- sacrifice of their lips. Hebrews thirteen fifteen says the same thing to us. They were to declare they would forsake all other dependencies of the nations and foreign gods in verse 3. Wow, he gives them the formula. Then in verse 4 through 7, God provides the promise to Israel. To Israel, not to the church. To Israel, verse 4, he would heal their backslidings and love them freely, turning his anger from them. 5 through 7, he would be the source of their blessing, like dew to the lily to revive them. That dew in the morning, that little lily, that's all the water it needs. God's so faithful. Bing! Nice. That little lily, you can't compare the finest cloth to it. God takes care of it. So you have previous passages, chapter 1, 10, all the way to chapter 2, verse 1, chapter 2, 14 through 23. These right here. Replacement theology, what do you do with it? God's through with Israel? Is God delusional or what? Look at verse 8 and 9. God proclaimed this plan fulfilled. Verse 8, Ephraim will confess her faithfulness. Or his unfaithfulness to him. Verse 9. Ephraim will exhort all to walk with God or be judged. God says it's going to happen. The remnant. Middle of the tribulation, great tribulation. They'll call upon the Lord. You know, loving father chastens and disciplines his child with great difficulty. But with committed persistency. 
Because he knows that if he doesn't deal with his child, then he's going to bring much pain and destruction to those in the future. It's real simple. So God pursues his people to discipline them, to chasten them, that they might walk according to his word, to affect people for good, not for evil. But it begins with me first. The message of Hosea is still valid for those living in sin today who know God, spiritual and faithfulness to Jesus. Sin affects me than others. It excludes no one. The heart of sin is the heart of man. That's the problem. It's in me, not outside of me. The stuff outside only attracts what's inside. Are we clear on that? Okay. You know, it's like the guy that went to see the psychologist, right? The guy said, well, you're a pervert. Every picture I show you, 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 you give me with it. He said, what, me? You're the one showing me the dirty pictures. <laughs> the problem's inside. The sin of man stands in contrast to the holiness of God. Therefore, Psalm sixty-six, eighteen says, If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. So we must stay right, walking with God, confessing, fellowshipping, growing. The message of Hosea, warning and charges of judgment, is still valid also. Now, I'm sure you weren't getting up with excitement to hear this message this morning if you would have known about it. But it's a valid message. It's a true message. In fact, it's a very, very relative message for today in the world, our nation, and the church. If that person takes the warning, but if they just increase in sin and there's no repentance, that's not good. And this is so that God does not have to deal severely with the individuals that they would eat from. The judgment of God is always based on his perfect justice. You never have to worry about God making mistakes. If there's repentance, God will be just. If there's no repentance, God will be just. He can't make a mistake. They have sown to the wind and reap the whirlwind. Hosea 8, 7. The promise of forgiveness and restoration is equally valid today based on God's steadfast love. The individual acknowledging his sin or her sin, confessing and abandoning it. That's what biblical repentance is. That's what being born again means. Then individually growing, developing and maturing Christ Jesus. Keeping your accounts short. But you don't live in darkness anymore. It's not the practice of life. That's not where we're at. The individual must then live, walk, and do warfare in the spirit. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but spiritual, bringing down the stronghold. Second Corinthians 10, 3 through 4. Finally, my brethren, put on the arm. Be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God. Uh, Ephesians 6, um, uh, 9 and 10 down to 18, uh, 518, uh, be not drunk with wine and excess, but be you filled with the Spirit of God continually. You cannot trust in yourself. This flesh is rotten, and the older I get, the rottener it gets. The old man doesn't get better. Are you kidding me? It's like people, when they meet you, they haven't seen them for a long time, say, man, you look good. You look the same. I go, did I look this bad 20 years ago? 
Let's get serious here. Come on. Listen to Paul, Philippians 3, 13 through 15. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things that are behind and reaching forward to the things that are ahead. I press towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, let us, as many as are mature, have this mind. And if in any, uh, anything you think otherwise, God will reveal even this to you. One thing, forgetting those things that are behind, pressing forward to the things that are ahead, moving forward, looking always aware of the present, never forgetting the past, being able to judge the present by the word of God and moving forward, Lord, what would you want me to do? What's going on? Lord, what should we do? Who should I speak to? Wow. This was a historic message of Hosea. Now, I don't know about you, but I think it's very relevant for today. I think that God's just going to bless our socks off as we go through these minor prophets because it's so relevant for our day and the world today, ladies and gentlemen. This is Hosea, the prophet of love. Through this threefold lens, the prophetic office of Hosea, the horrific time of Hosea, and the historic message of Hosea. Man, God's word, nothing like it. Father, thank you for your grace, your love, your goodness. Deal with our hearts. And thank you for your goodness, Lord. And Father, I pray for every one of us today. You deal with us, Lord. And Father, for those who do not know you, that you would speak to their hearts. As you're praying, if you're here, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, God has brought you here to be saved, to turn from your sin. But only you can make that decision. God doesn't force you. God will take the initiation. He'll bring the conviction. Turn on the light, and then you make a decision. You don't have to worry if God chose you or not. If God is convicting you, you see and you agree what we said, then God is asking you, do you want to be saved? Do you want to be forgiven? If you call upon him, he will do exactly that. It's a prayer of repentance. This is your prayer, balcony, floor, or over the internet, wherever you are. If you mean it, he's going to change your life right now. Transform it. If you play games, you'll remain the same as you are. The choice is yours. This is a prayer for you towards Jesus. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Fill me with your spirit. I accept you as my Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.